we all realize that without everybody together at the table, we can't tell the stories that we want to be able to. There's huge gaps in the documentary records. There's obviously huge gaps in the artifact assemblage that they were able to take out of the ground. But together, we are able to, I think, tell some of the most exciting stories that you'll ever come across in this Dismal Swamp environment. I'm Erin Hardnett. And I'm Amber Mitchell, and you're listening to Tilling the Soil, a Whitney Plantation podcast. In this season of Tilling the Soil, we will be exploring various conversations surrounding the environment. Today on Tilling the Soil, we are joined by Dr. Brent Morris, professor of history at Clemson University, to discuss his research on maroons of the Great Dismal Swamp. Hi, Brent. Hi, Dr. Morris. To begin, I think that the audience and myself would really benefit from you just briefly introducing yourself and talking about your work. Uh, Well, my name is Brent Morris, and I'm a professor of history at Clemson University in South Carolina. I've worked at different universities in the state of South Carolina for my entire career and have done research in in sort of a a very broad area of African-American and Southern history. I've done some work in South Carolina history specifically, but I think my most, at least to me, the most interesting (laughs) research that I've done has been research and writing on African-American freedom struggles at different points. My research in South Carolina has spanned, you know, five, six hundred years. But recently, of course, this book on the Dismal Swamp Maroons, I was able to get that out after about two decades of of working on it. And it tells an amazing story of, of resilience, of people who refuse to be enslaved and who carve out a life of freedom within this environment of enslavement. So I've been working on that for a while. I've been involved with the Great Dismal Swamp Landscape Study, which is an archaeological-based research group that started as sort of a a part of the dissertation research of Daniel Sayers at William & Mary. Dan's now at at American University in Washington, D.C., and has kind of spearheaded this movement. And it's, it's a fascinating group of interdisciplinary scholars because we all realize that without everybody together at the table, we can't tell the stories that we want to be able to. There's huge gaps in the documentary record. There's obviously huge gaps in the artifact assemblage that they were able to take out of the ground. But together, we are able to, I think, tell some of the most exciting stories that you'll ever come across in this Dismal Swamp environment. Yeah, for sure. And you kind of are preempting some of my other questions. So you mentioned your book, Dismal Freedom, and it focuses on maroons and the Great Dismal Swamps, right? But I think that for for the sake of our audience, can you offer a definition of maroon? Like, who are the Maroons? Maroons have, everywhere that there has been enslavement, there have been Maroons. I always said that the first abolitionists were enslaved people themselves. And wherever there is enslavement, people try to escape it. And very often they try to establish lives of freedom outside of the enslavement environment. So that's essentially what marinage and a Maroon is. So a Maroon is a person who has self-extricated themselves from their enslavement and in some way or another live at odds with the environment or the the legal system of their enslavers. I look at marinage as more of a process from the first step towards freedom that a person takes in leaving their slave labor camp, all the way to the point at which either their life comes to an end naturally in freedom, or they could be re-enslaved, as many were. But that process of of freedom-seeking is how I define marinage. 
So people may have been maroons for a matter of weeks. They could have been maroons with one foot in and one foot out of the slave system, sort of working as subcontractors to enslaved African-Americans. Or they could have intended to, to, to disappear, in my case, into the Great Dismal Swamp for their entire lives to stay under the radar. So it was these people who wanted to, to live outside of the slave system to be able to carve out as much of a life of freedom as possible. And to do so on their own terms, that makes somebody a maroon. And it, it differs from other people's definitions of, of marinage. Different people have limited who they consider to be a maroon based on how long these people wanted to, to essentially seek their freedom, how long they were outside of the slave system, where they might have been settled. But I think having a, a broad definition like that really is inclusive to a lot of people. And it, and it very well kind of sums up the experience itself. Maroons were the people who were involved in this process of marinage to establish a life somewhere on this long continuum of freedom between full freedom and unfreedom of enslavement. Yeah, I think that that definition is is actually really useful, especially kind of given where Whitney Plantation is and the German coast. Looking at a lot of kind of literature that touches on maroons, though obviously it is not super extensive, in Louisiana, we we find that maroons were frequently people who, you know, would maybe absent themselves from a plantation for, you know, a, a matter of weeks or a matter of months or sometimes for longer periods of time. And you also note that, you know, the relationships between maroons and enslaved populations were really porous. You know, people continued to maintain the relationships with family members and, you know, sometimes returned to the plantation for a variety of reasons. And I, I think that also it's important to note perhaps that, you know, a misconception about maroons is that they only existed in swamps, you know, like the dismal swamp or like the swamps in, in Louisiana. So Maroons existed in cities. Can you kind of speak to like what those scholars are asserting about like how Maroons were both in the swamps, but also in urban environments? Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, it makes sense if, if you consider a Maroon to be somebody who is who is self-emancipated, who has you know, self-extricated themselves from enslavement, where they settle after that and establish their lives to a large degree, is their choice. And if they choose to do it in a swamp, then all well and good for them. It has a lot to do with what their intention in freedom is going to be. So if you happen to be enslaved on a, on a plantation or a labor camp in the countryside, but you want a life where you have the ability to, to, to apply a skill or a trade that you've learned as an enslaved person, you might find much more opportunity to do that in a city. And you do end up with, in, in all big cities in the South and in the North, you have a, a relatively large free Black population, at least relative, especially in the South, to the enslaved population. And it is, it's possible to kind of disappear in, in the big, big cities and the larger populations in the city. You know, a lot of enslaved people are enslaved in the cities, applying their trades as well, sometimes hired out by their owners. But there are a lot of people that work in the cities as well who have self-extricated and just sort of keep their head down, but develop a life within the hustle and the bustle of city while being essentially on the other side of the, the law as the enslavers uh, define it. The same is the case in the swamp. The people that end up in the Great Dismal Swamp for, you know, in, in my research, a lot of them, not all, and I can get into the different groups though in the swamp as well, but a lot of them wanted to completely disappear. And the Great Dismal Swamp and in other swamps like it and other inaccessible areas, mountains sometimes, swamps, rivers, places like that, allowed them to place themselves beyond the reach of enslavers that might try to, to recapture or reclaim them. 
And the Dismal Swamp, it was considered by a lot of whites on the outside as completely impenetrable. And because of that sort of completely useless, at least for their purposes, you couldn't turn the Dismal Swamp into a plantation, although they tried. But to an enslaved person who had self-emancipated, the fact that it was deemed impenetrable and the fact that there was really, there really is no way for any number of, you know, more than two or three people to make their way into the swamp, especially a militia or people on horseback with dogs trying to hunt slaves, it couldn't have happened in the Dismal Swamp. So if you could make it to the deepest reaches of the Great Dismal Swamp, you were free. You know, you were free, you were living a life that was, you know, on your own terms. It may not have been the most ideal circumstance that anybody in the United States would find themselves, right? Living in a swamp beside poisonous snakes, biting insects, alligators, and in a swamp, you know, for goodness sakes. But it was a place where you belonged to yourself. It was a place where you could marry and have a family without too much of a, of a threat of that family being captured and broken apart and sold in slavery. You could do what you wanted to during a day. You could worship how you wanted to during a day. You could eat and, and cultivate the foods that, that you knew how to grow and that you knew would grow in the swamp. And for the most part, live a freer life than a lot of other people in free situations lived in the United States. So where Maroon settled had everything to do with what their intentions were on the other side of enslavement. And that, like I said, could be from just disappearing and, and living a quiet life far out of the reach of, of anybody that might be looking for them to, you know, in some cases in the Dismal Swamp, living on the edge and using it as a, a staging ground for, for raids against nearby farms and plantations. Or it could be living in a city, trying to stay below the radar, but, but living a life on your own terms much more than the case was when you had been enslaved. For sure, for sure. And also, I, I might note for the audience as well that urban environments were particularly attractive for women with children who, you know, wanted to absent them themselves, to emancipate themselves with their children. You know, women with like valuable skills like, you know, laundering or cooking, like could have found employment in cities like New Orleans or Charleston and, you know, continue to maintain family ties and be with their children, which 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 was really important. That's kind of why the majority of, you know, runaway ads are of young men, because yeah. young men typically did not have like those same kind of like familial ties as as young women who would have had children. But yeah, thank you so much for expanding kind of our definition of maroon. And also one thing that that you were kind of circling around was this reinterpretation of the definition of freedom. And I'm interested in hearing more about what you what you believe maroons can tell us about the definition of freedom. Early in the process of, of having a, a book proposal be accepted by my press, I ran into some pushback from anonymous readers who really had a problem with the language that I used to describe maroons. I, I said that, you know, they they made it to Dismal Swamp and they 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 thrive in the Dismal Swamp. And they said, oh, there's no way that you can thrive in the Dismal Swamp. And when you start to hear language like that, you dismiss the rest of the report because it's just, it's absurd. I mean, we haven't, or historians haven't really looked at at enslavement and things that sort of come from enslavement as as just sort of making it impossible for people to thrive since the 50s. And my, my point was that people in the Dismal Swamp had chosen a hard life. They had chosen a difficult life, but they had chosen a life there 
because the worst day in the swamp is better than the best day enslaved on a, a labor camp. And once they were able to make that leap from enslavement to freedom, they were able to thrive in ways that they never would have been able to on a plantation. And I sort of looked at it as it wasn't an ideal situation. Nobody goes to live in a swamp unless it's like the, the last option that they have. But a lot of people did because it was an option nonetheless. And if you look at the lives of the, of the Maroons of the Great Dismal Swamp or Maroons in any other place, you can see that, you know, like I said earlier, they're able to, to establish families. I mean, there were, there were people that I've come across in my research in the, in the depths of the Dismal Swamp who early in their lives marooned to the swamp. We're talking like in their teens. And then they, they met their spouse in the swamp. They had families in the swamp. They had children sometimes in the swamp that lived their entire lives without leaving the swamp and never seeing a white face. And they were able to live life on their own terms. And that is something that they never would have been able to claim outside of the swamp as an enslaved person. So the fact that they weren't able to come and go from the swamp to, to Norfolk, Virginia or to Richmond or something like that didn't mean that they were not free. It just means that they fell somewhere on this huge continuum of freedom between absolute and, and abject, ensl abject enslavement and full freedom. So the fact that someone who has chosen to live a life of marinage can't exercise all the rights of other free people doesn't mean that they're not free. Freedom was really what you made of it. These Maroons were able to create lives that were far and away better than the lives they would have lived as enslaved people. Truly, truly a fascinating story. And it really kind of calls us contemporarily to continue to think about the way that we define freedom for ourselves. You've also mentioned a few times, like different groups of Maroons in the Dismal Swamps. Like, obviously, it was not monolithic. Can you speak a bit towards who were the different groups of Maroons, different individuals in the swamps? Yeah. Now, over you know, time and space, there's a lot of difference here in the, in the, in the Great Dismal Swamp. But, but generally, I've been able to break down the folks in the swamp to three bigger groups, different types of Maroons. You have the, the people that I've called the fringe maroons. Fringe maroons are those that, that self-emancipated and used the Great Dismal Swamp kind of in, in limited ways. They didn't really try to get to the, the deepest parts of the swamp to settle there permanently, but used the, the fringes of the swamp as just a place to settle for a little while. It was no secret to anybody in the 19th century. And, and now the Great Dismal Swamp has been uh, recognized as a stop on the National um, Underground Railroad to Freedom. But it was it was understood that you know the Dismal Swamp was somewhere that if you could get there, you could hide out for a little while. You could rest, you could recuperate before your next stop towards a northern state or towards Canada or something like that. There were also people who marooned for shorter amounts of time, temporarily, purposefully temporarily. There are a lot of instances where people extricated themselves from their from their plantation or from their owner and you know used their absence as a way to negotiate a better situation in enslavement, which it, you know it complicates our understanding of slavery and freedom as well. People who intended to go back into their enslavement, of course, it could have been with their family, it could have been with everybody in the life that they knew, right? But they could negotiate with their owner for a, a promise for what that was worth, not to break up their family and sell them apart or for a, a working environment that was a little bit more protected, a little bit safer for them or something like that. Outside of the fringes of the swamp, and, and let me put that into context as well, the Dismal Swamp, before it began to be drained to a pretty significant um, extent in the late 19th century, it was about 2,000 square miles of swampland, about the size of the state of Delaware. So there's there's a lot of territory around the swamp that could easily be used as a temporary stopover. Now, these fringe maroons would have had to live a different type of life than other groups. So they 
they were trying to to hide out, but they were also within the reach of people outsiders who would come in and try to get them. So if they were going to cook food, they had to learn what woods, wood products like different barks could be burned without too much smoke to give away their their location. They couldn't build anything resembling a house or any, or a fort or something like you might find in the middle of the Dismal Swamp. So they were purposefully temporary. There were also a second group of maroons that I call liminal maroons in my book. And these are those people who kind of kept one foot in the enslavement world and one foot in the world of freedom in the dismal swamp. And by that, I mean, they interacted with enslaved people in the swamp while maintaining their own sense of freedom as maroons. So the, the Great Dismal Swamp had, from really from the 1750s and 60s, been a landscape that white entrepreneurs had their eyes on. George Washington was was a member of the the adventurers to drain the Dismal Swamp was the, what they called themselves starting in the 17 early 1760s, and they wanted to drain the swamp, turn it into a you know a, a something that they could plow and and plant. That failed. The swamp did a much better job defeating George Washington than even the British did. It's it's amazing to to think about just how George Washington was successful as this great, you know, or at least people think he was successful as this great military mind, but he couldn't defeat the swamp. The swamp was indefeatable. And then later in the uh, the early 19th century, the Dismal Swamp Canal was cut through the swamp, kind of a, a north-south line through the swamp. And that canal opened up the swamp to the outside world in a way that it hadn't been before. It was used mainly for getting the the products of Virginia to the North Carolina side of the swamp and then vice versa. But it also opened up the swamp to more extensive lumbering operations and the the wood that was in the swamp and and very often trees that had already fallen that could be actually brought up from the bottom of the swamp were turned into shingles, were turned into barrel staves. So enslaved gangs essentially would be sent into the swamp to harvest these these trees to turn them into shingles and barrel staves. And one of the, the most interesting things that you'll come across in looking at the Dismal Swamp is how many shingles and barrel staves and things like that were produced by such a small number of enslaved people. And the sources directly suggest that enslaved people actually subcontracted out a lot of their, their quota for, for shingles and like to maroons. Maroons would help them find the trees, would help them harvest the trees, process them into things that could be sold. The maroon for their labors would be given, you know, some cash or some supplies that they needed that the enslaved people had more ready access to. And the enslaved people would be able to meet their quota. And the maroons allowed the enslaved laborers in the swamp to fulfill their tasks. Both sides gained something from it. And to a large extent, you know, the, the white authorities, people who were, were leading these lumbering operations kind of turned a blind eye to it because they benefited, their bottom line benefited as well. And you get a lot of back and forth. It's a very porous, liminal society there. We have some maroons actually that are living in the enslaved people's camps. You have a lot of enslaved people that go out into the swamp one day looking for trees and just keep going and never come back. <laughs> and, and this allows this really interesting sort of social scenario to develop there. The third group, though, are the people who I think intended their marinage to be permanent. They didn't care about making some cash on the side to maybe buy a relative's freedom or anything like that. They wanted to disappear. They wanted to, to live life on their own terms, and they wanted as much freedom as they possibly could carve out for themselves deep in the swamp. So these deep swamp maroons did just that. They, they settled in the most inaccessible parts of the Great Dismal Swamp, where I think enabled them to live a more free life than they would have been able to do anywhere else. And they chose to do it in the, in the large, right in the middle of the largest slaveholding society in the United States, which is also interesting and ironic too. And all of these groups did interact. There was a, a, an amazing communication system, communication network 
that existed across the Great Dismal Swamp. The canal itself, even though it was it was dug and put there by capitalists, not with any consideration about how that would affect the lives of maroons, obviously, it became sort of this information superhighway through the through the swamp. There were slave rebellions that were planned on the Virginia and North Carolina side of the swamp that relied on communication quick, fast through the swamp to in a lot of and in a lot of ways kind of coordinate attacks, coordinate different plots, different plans. And it, it, it created within these different groups just this fascinating web of relationships that worked. It really did work. There were no attempts really to force somebody into a group that they didn't want to be a part of. And there was, you know, as, as much freedom to choose your life as you, as you wanted, essentially. If you wanted to sort of live uh, with one foot in, one foot out, you could do that. If you wanted to use the swamp as a stopping off point to get somewhere else, you could do that. And if you wanted to disappear and live a free life, you could also do that as well. Wow. Thank you so much for that. That was very enlightening. And you bring up at the end this this question of Maroon's involvement in rebellion, which I I find particularly interesting. In your book, you make this this assertion that Great Dismal Swamp Maroons relentlessly resisted like enslavement, right? And their their primary goal was freedom, but not necessarily the overthrow of the system of slavery. But like Maroons nevertheless engaged in rebellion. And you know, here on the German coast, we have the 1811 rebellion, you know, the first mobilization of the United States armed forces domestically. And certainly Maroons were involved in that. So I'm wondering now if you could maybe explain how you came about to this this assertion that like their primary goal was freedom and not the overthrow when there is clear evidence that they were involved in rebellious activity aimed towards the overthrow of the system. Yeah, there's so many ways of coming at that question. <laughs> so I'll try a few. The rebellions that are documented that either transpired to a certain degree or that were frustrated before they were able to be put into effect, they did happen. Gabriel's rebellion on the Virginia side, kind of a little bit farther north of the swamp in Richmond, was possibly connected to the Dismal Swamp in some ways. But the Easter Rebellion of 1802, that was kind of a spinoff of, of Gabriel's foil plot, very much was organized within the, the boundaries of the, the historic Great Dismal Swamp by people who were Maroons. There were you know, a, a significant number of people that did settle on the fringes of the swamp as Maroons. And they, to a large degree, you know, they couldn't plant crops like the Maroons in the Deep Swamp could have. They couldn't really supply themselves with what they needed to survive without striking out from the swamp and, and helping themselves to the, the property of the people that had enslaved them. Sometimes that extended to the point of confrontation and fighting and what the whites on the outside would consider rebellion, you know, stealing this property. So there there was some from the fringe, there were strikes out against plantation society. There were involvements of Dismal Swamp Maroons with slave rebellion. But the vast majority of Maroons that lived in the Dismal Swamp, whether they were the, the liminal Maroons that, that sort of interacted with the enslaved laborers in the swamp or the people that were establishing these permanent communities, they had no interest in rebellion. They would have loved, I'm sure, to see the, the system of human enslavement come to a, a quick crashing end. But it, it didn't serve their interest to be a part of that necessarily. The, the liminal maroons had to, you know, they wanted to make a living. They wanted to have sort of a comfortable life outside of the control of their enslavers. And then the, the deep swamp maroons just wanted to be left alone. So you never come across evidence of a rebellion being planned and plotted deep in the swamp 
which would have been the safest place to do that, right? <laughs> but they would have never wanted to do that because the lives that they had spent so much time and effort building would have been destroyed if a rebellion went the wrong way, and they always did. Now, that's from inside the swamp looking out, right? From outside of the swamp looking in, what whites on the outside knew was that hundreds and potentially thousands of people, enslaved people, had self-emancipated and made the Great Dismal Swamp their refuge. And, you know, from the, the whole history of human enslavement, there was this knowledge, this awareness by enslavers that they were dealing with human beings. They were enslaving other humans. And especially with the rhetoric around the American Revolution, you know, talking about freedom and slavery as fast and loose as the, the, the founding fathers did. They understood that if they were to be enslaved, the first thing they would try to do is to reclaim their freedom by any means necessary. And they were certain that the human beings that they were enslaving, that were looking eye to eye as other people, as other men, as other women, they would probably do the same thing if the shoe were on the other foot, or at least that's what they thought. And it created this terror, I guess, in a lot of ways of whites for what was going on into the swamp, because A, they had no idea what was going on inside the dismal swamp. And because of that, they could only assume that the worst thing was happening, that these human beings were gathering in the dismal swamp, planning a way to come out and overthrow their enslavers and the whole system of enslavement that had, that had kept them in change for centuries. So the dismal swamp as a magnet to enslaved people to find freedom was this dark, almost like black hole there between Virginia and North Carolina that represented all the worst fears of enslavers because they couldn't get in. They they couldn't beat the swamp. They couldn't even get in without a black guide a lot of the times. They didn't know what was what was transpiring in there, but if they had to guess, it must be people trying to figure out a way to achieve their freedom. So when slave rebellions happened in the area, the first explanation that people usually landed on was that, oh, this must finally be what we knew was always going to happen. These dismal swamp maroons have finally come out and, and this is the beginning of the end. The Nat Turner Rebellion in 1831, before you know the full extent of that rebellion started making it out of the Richmond area, people just assumed this is just a, another kind of small rebellion that's been organized on the edges of the Dismal Swamp. But then as the, the full extent of that rebellion did start to make it out, people began to report and write that, you know, this is the this is an army of um, of highly armed Africans who have come out of the Dismal Swamp, finally doing what we always thought they were going to do. And that was always the, the most likely explanation for a slave rebellion, but it hardly ever actually was the case. Now, the Dismal Swamp did suffer because of this. After Nat Turner in 1831, there were attempts to go into the swamp to try to, to hunt out the Maroons and round up as many of these fugitives as they could, which was incredibly unsuccessful. And a lot of African-Americans found themselves in the wrong place at the wrong time and sort of blamed for things that they had no involvement with. But the Dismal Swamp kind of loomed there as this unknown, dangerous place that was potentially a disaster waiting to happen. So what I say in the book is that the Dismal Swamp Maroons were very seldom interested in organizing a rebellion that would end slavery. But cumulatively, over the centuries the thousands of people that did make their lives in the Dismal Swamp, the fact that they lived there, the fact that their, their marooning and living there actually flew in the face of everything that white people had concocted as a way to sort of justify owning other human beings. You know, the fact that people of African descent were inferior in every way, that they were somehow biologically created as workers, as laborers, that they didn't want to be free, that if you took them out of the kind of the beneficent oversight of white people, that they would just die off. The fact that there were people doing all of those things in the Dismal Swamp and doing it successfully, it not only meant that there was a ticking time bomb potentially 
represented by the thousands of people in the dismal swamp. It also was an ideological disaster because they represented everything that people had to do these these mental acrobatics to justify owning other humans. So the weight of that actually, I believe, did far more to move against slavery and eventually play a pretty important role in its downfall than sporadic slave rebellions might have ever done coming out of the swamp. There were some of those, but the Dismal Swamp Maroons were not interested in that. Yeah, for sure. And I think perhaps it's also useful at this moment to think globally about why they would kind of project this onto Maroons in the United States, because Maroons in other parts of the Americas, like in the Caribbean and Brazil, Haiti, for example, (laughs) Maroons operated differently. And, you know, part of this could perhaps be attributed to like also demographic differences in different different parts of the Americas, because, you know, like in the United States, like Black people were not the majority, right? But in other parts of the Caribbean, that was more the case. And, you know, like the, the fears of Maroons were were actually well-founded because the Haitian Revolution certainly involved Maroons. Yeah. And, and as I was saying, in, in Brazil, Maroons really had cities and really put up a, a, a good fight. They put up the good fight. And ultimately, you know, slavery no longer exists. So, you know, all of, all of these things were related, you know, both going into the swamps and staying there with no, you know, real intention to participate in, in the direct overthrow of the system, as you were saying with the dismal swamps, but also these kind of global initiatives in other parts of the Americas. And now, now I'm thinking perhaps we can turn a bit more towards the actual research that goes into, you know, knowing what you now know about Maroons in the, in the Great Dismal Swamps. As you mentioned in your book, finding sources that speak directly to Maroons and, you know, their lived realities is, you know, near impossible. (laughs) It's it's really a struggle. So can you share with us the kind of sources that you tapped into to write your book? Yeah. So I went off to grad school fully intending to write a dissertation on the Great Dismal Swamp Maroons. The little bit that I had been able to stumble upon. And it, I mean, it was an amazingly small amount of research that had ever been done. Most of it was just sort of speculative writing, a paragraph and a, you know, a, a monograph somewhere else. But it seemed fascinating. I thought if I can get at this story, this will be amazing. And realized very quickly as an early grad student that there, I just didn't have the skills to do the type of work that was going to be necessary to extricate this story from the past. These are people who by and large wanted to disappear and were incredibly successful at that disappearance. They didn't keep a census in the Great Dismal Swamp. There were no written records that that I know of, that anybody knows of, that have survived produced within the Great Dismal Swamp. Knowing that, it complicates the process of research because you do have to rely a lot on outside understandings of what people or what people thought was going on in the Dismal Swamp. So I've been doing research on and off since I kind of had to put the project on a back burner because this was not something I was going to let go. I just had to figure out a way to get at the history. And I would here and there. The most valuable sources that I came across were these sort of Reconstruction era, late 19th century interviews, sometimes that would show up in local newspapers. North Carolina and Virginia local newspapers on either side of the swamp would sometime see some old African-American man on the street The stories that would come from that were absolutely fascinating. I was coming to find that these stories that were told in the late 19th, even early 20th century about life in the swamp were lining up very well with what 
cumulatively, I was learning about the swamp through other other ways. But still, it would have never been enough to write a book about. I mean, the 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 number of firsthand accounts of maroon life dictated from maroon stories or you know written by maroons, which were very scarce later on. I mean, probably less than ten that I could find. My luck really came with my interaction and collaborations with folks who were dealing in other disciplines, working in other disciplines. Dan Sayers, the archaeologist at American University, was trying to get at the story of the Great Dizzle Swamp Maroons from a, an archaeological standpoint. And he was doing work in the swamp, archaeological work in the swamp. And I was able to pretty early on get involved with Dan. Dan put in a, an application for an NEH grant for several years that was about $200,000 around that. And it funded the first kind of extensive archaeological work that had ever been done in the Great Dismal Swamp. Now, you know, you've got different disciplines coming at the story from different ways. The very kind of spotty documentary record that I was able to put together was now supplemented by this archaeological record that, you know, Dan and his colleagues, the things that they were pulling out of the ground. And it allowed me to, to add texture to the story to fill in gaps that things that I assumed were probably happening were there, but I wasn't going to take that leap, you know, to actually write it without any sort of sources to back it up. And the archaeology allowed me to do that. By coming at the story from so many different ways, we were able to, Dan in his own way and my, me in my own, to write, he wrote a, a book that was archaeology heavy and mine is, is more his, history heavy, but to, to write the story of these Dizzle Swamp Maroons and finding these sources I don't know how you would do that sort of work in four or five years, because it took me almost two decades to piece together enough to write a book about it. And sometimes it was just luck, absolute sheer luck. So my first book came from my dissertation, which had nothing to do with Maroons. It was about the abolitionist movement, Oberlin, Ohio, and sort of how that, that college town became this abolitionist hub in the early 1800s into the Civil War era. And I was in Oberlin looking through some microfilm and the local newspaper that was published in Oberlin, the Lorraine County News. I came across an article from an 1865 newspaper, and it said, the title of it was Life in the Swamp. I thought, this sounds interesting, you know, based on the, my interest in the Dismal Swamp, I'll see what's going on. There was an Oberlin student who had enlisted at the beginning of the Civil War, who had gone off to fight, who towards the end of the war was stationed in Tidewater, Virginia. And I believe this was the early spring of 1865, late winter of 1864, he had been assigned to take a census, basically, of the contraband or the, you know, the free people that were gathered there in and around the Norfolk area. And he had a list of questions that he would ask, uh, you know, where are you from? Where were you enslaved before the war? How long have you been behind our lines? Can you tell us a little bit about what you've been doing the last few years, et cetera, et cetera. And he came across somebody named Abraham Lester and Abraham Lester's answers were unlike anybody else's. They were totally confusing to this young Oberlin student, especially the, the question that asked, how long have you been behind our lines? Because his answer predated you know, most of the Civil War. And he, by piecing together these answers, realized all of a sudden that, oh my goodness, this guy has been living in the Great Dismal Swamp for the last five years. He was from Oberlin, right? So he was from, he had this abolitionist background. He had heard the stories and the legend of the Great Dismal Swamp Maroons. And now he was face to face with one, taking his life story right after the Civil War. And that sort of needle in a haystack or needle in a thousand haystacks, that's what you have to do to get to a story like this of the Dismal Swamp Maroons. Amazing interview, basically, that he was able to get from Abraham Lester. But just show you how complicated this can be, too. If you're involved in another research project, you might put something to the side to come back to later and realize that you probably shouldn't have done that. So after I so I made a scan of that microfilm, I thought I got to get back to this Dismal Swamp project after I wrap up this Oberlin book. 
So when I finally did get to go back and, and really have a close reading of this Life in the Swamp article, <laughs> I got to the end of it and it said to be continued in our next issue. So I had to, I, I flew back to Ohio, <laughs> went back to Oberlin, found the microfilm again because it was the only place you could find it. The follow up was an interview with his wife, a woman named Lorinda White, who he had met in the swamp, who he had married who had helped him build their first house in the swamp, actually up in the trees, who had had a family. She happened to be right down on the on the same block when he was giving the interview. So he called her over to, to talk to this Oberlin student as well. Those sorts of really rich sources, if you're looking for them in the places that you expect them to be, they will not be there. <laughs> so, you know, piecing together enough to sort of make the outline of my story and being able to fill in the gaps with with the archaeological work, but also, you know, to be able to use what we know of marinage as it happened in other places. The Dismal Swamp, it was not the mountains in Jamaica. It was not a Quilombo in Brazil. But there were very often parallels and similarities that would show up to the point where if you had nothing and you needed to tell a story, in a lot of cases, you could sort of extrapolate that similar things happened in the Dismal Swamp based on what you did know. So there's some degree of that as well. There was no, you know, sort of communication between major maroon societies and colonies like that. You know, the Jamaica, the um, Brazil, even, you know, Cuba or the Caribbean with the Dismal Swamp. But there was a knowledge of that. And there was just a, a lot of similarities in how people in a wilderness environment survive. And enough of those to really be able to, to bring it all together and tell, I won't call it a complete story, but probably as complete a story as we'll ever be able to be told based on the the difficulty of, of finding all the details to that most people in writing a you know a work of history would would demand. I wasn't able to to put together as airtight a case and argument for the Dismal Swamp book as I might have wanted to. But as much as I could, I did. So I, I think the end result is, is pretty good. There was a lot of lot of work involved by a lot of different people from a lot of different disciplinary perspectives. But the end result is, is this story of marinage in America. What precisely did y'all find in the swamp, archaeologically speaking? When a layperson hears about archaeologists, they think of excavating a pyramid or a sphinx. And that's not at all what happens in this case. Now, Dan's work was the first to have ever been done fieldwork in the Great Dismal Swamp. He spent a lot of time coming up with ideas for what he would find, artifact assemblage signatures, things like this. And when he finally got to the swamp, it became clear that there, were, there weren't going to be huge discoveries as far as like the scale of the artifacts. First of all, the swamp itself, it's a peat swamp, so it's highly acidic. Everything organic is eaten away. So what you actually find are the things that were inorganic. And, but that's important because as a peat swamp, any metal that you find in the swamp, any stone, any small piece of brick or glass, it was all brought in. So the existence of anything that's inorganic in the swamp is significant in and of itself. But all told, probably the, the amount of artifacts that were brought out of the ground by Dan and his, his students over the years, I mean, you could probably fill a five-gallon bucket with these things. And actually, at the, the bottom level of the Smithsonian National Museum of African-American History and Culture in D.C., there's a small part of an exhibit that tells the story of the Great Dizzle Swamp Maroons. And there's probably 10 or 12 artifacts or half a centimeter that make up the entire exhibit. You look at it, and you're, it's, not, it's very underwhelming to see it. But the fact that they exist is important. And the fact that they exist in the form that Dan and the archaeologists have brought them out of the ground is significant, too, because not only were most of the organic artifacts, you know, not able to be recovered, the fact that 
inorganic materials were brought out of the swamp in ways that clearly showed that they had been used and reused and recycled over the years, it really told researchers a lot about the sort of ethos of survival that happened in the swamp. So to back up a, a couple of centuries, I guess, pre-Columbian Native American indigenous societies actually did use the swamp. It was There was no need to actually live in the swamp because the pressures that came after colonization weren't there to push people into this place where nobody really wants to live. But the Dismal Swamp was a hunting ground of a lot of indigenous groups. There were probably some religious ceremonial uses of the swamp as well. And Maroons, African-Americans who had come to live in the swamp after the probably mid 1600s, early 1700s, began to find discarded Native American artifacts. To some extent, probably mined the swamp once they realized that certain areas were rich in these discarded artifacts, mined the swamp specifically to find Native American artifacts and then brought them back into use in a lot of ways. Would re repurpose Native American arrowheads, spearheads, things like that into different types of tools that were more useful to them. If there was a piece of broken glass later on that might have been brought into the swamp, that glass was sharpened and used as a scraping tool or might be used as a projectile point. The fact that the Maroons used and utilized everything, all of the material culture down to its last possible use. And if they had like a gun flint, they used it down to the last spark. It meant that you're not going to find knives that the Maroons just sort of casually lost because that thing was so valuable because of what it meant to get it into the swamp. That knife would have been used and sharpened to the point where it was useless. In a way, what they didn't find tells you a lot about what Maroons were doing because you don't find the, the evidence of a wasteful culture. You find evidence of people that recycled into oblivion and, and utilized everything that was at their, their fingertips for their survival. So the archaeological work was able to fill in a lot of gaps about material culture, architecture in a lot of ways, what people ate, how they processed it, how they were able to actually hunt in a lot of ways. We couldn't quite get very much into, into a lot of the, the cultural side of things, into religion, into, you know, in a lot of ways, social structure either, just because like I said, Maroons didn't keep records. They felt no reason to do that. But based on what we know of other Maroon societies, we can extrapolate you know, how, what life might have looked like beyond just the material culture. But fascinating work, hard work. We The first time I went into the swamp with the archaeologists, and just to give you a sense too of of, of what it meant for someone in the 19th century to, to, to self-emancipate and make their way to the Dismal Swamp, we got into a four-wheel drive Chevrolet Suburban, drove to the edge of the Dizzle Swamp National Wildlife Refuge, took a 19th century logging road three miles into the swamp in this Suburban, all got out at the end of that. We put on these uh, waders, you know, up to our chest. We put on snake-proof chaps. Everybody had nets over their head to keep out all the, the insects. Everybody got a bell to pin in themselves because if if you can let a bear, black bear, know that you're here before he sees you, you're much likely less likely to be attacked. There were machetes that were handed out. And then we went into the swamp. And the dig site was about, about a half mile into the swamp. And it took us probably about two hours to get to that. So the links that we went to, to reach the site of this maroon settlement were Herculean. But the links that a formerly enslaved person would have gone to, to be able to extricate themselves from enslavement, make their way to the swamp, into the swamp, to one of these communities is just unbelievable. I mean, it's it's heroism if you've ever used the word. So the difficulties that we as researchers had in actually reaching these maroon communities really says a lot about just the value of those communities to the people that made them up. For certain, I definitely just like 
the effort of doing it is is very informative just for your own understanding of of what it would have been like and this ethos of survival that you bring up really dovetails beautifully into you know the last question that i have which is just kind of like to wrap this into the theme of this season which is a, a general focus on the environment so like the ethos of survival like what can maroons and our our understanding of maroon life and survival method tell us about the environment and tell us about ways to to exist with the environment hmm. the most important character in the book is the great dismal swamp for for indigenous people before colonization the dismal swamp represented something significant it was a place where you could hunt it was a place to to provide sustenance for yourself it was also eventually a place of refuge too the first people to inhabit the dismal swamp were indigenous refugees sort of trying to, to flee these pressures of colonization and militarization. They were the ones who figured out how it is you survive in the Great Dismal Swamp. And then as, as Africans began to be imported into Chesapeake in the, the early 1600s, and then as that African population of laborers increased and the number of people who were escaping that plantation juggernaut also increased, the proportion of African Americans in the swamp rose too. But the Dismal Swamp was something that from the beginning was always viewed as it, it wasn't just a place that you found yourself. It was it was your protector in a lot of ways. It was your provider in a lot of ways. And there was there was never a point at which the Maroons sort of dismissed the Dismal Swamp as, as just a landscape. It allowed them, to a greater extent than they would have been able to do anywhere else, the ability to live lives on their own terms, to, to achieve a degree of freedom that they would have never been able to anywhere else. And the fact that it also was a threat to them was not nearly as important as the fact that it was a threat to everybody else from the outside. So if you could make your way to the swamp, and if you were able to, to come into contact with these people who had lived in the swamp, you know, for generations, learn how to live yourself in the swamp and to make your own life, that knowledge would protect you. And the lack of that knowledge would also protect you on the outside, because the Dismal Swamp was a place that white people were terrified of. They are absolutely terrified. It was something, it was a place, it was this mar on the landscape, they described it as in a lot of ways, that they could not penetrate. I mean, they just couldn't get into the swamp without getting lost, without getting bogged down in these, these not quicksand, but like peat holes, alligators, rattlesnakes, cottonmouths, poisonous snakes, mosquitoes are not nearly as bad as the biting flies, the yellow flies that come out in June. It was a, a feature of the landscape that seemed to be actively hostile to people that were trying to come into it and to, to to take advantage of it from the outside. And so most white people had no reason to want to go into the swamp, except that their property was escaping into the swamp. And they were afraid to go in. The folks in the swamp were able to sort of use that danger to protect themselves. And you do come across a, a recognition and acknowledgement in the, the very few firsthand accounts that I've come across of Maroons that lived in the swamp, in almost all of them, there is this understanding that the swamp is not just the place we happen to live. It was the place that allowed us to live and it protected us. One of the most fascinating discoveries of the archaeologists were actually actually sort of play into this as well. And excavating a post hole that was, they believe, either the corner or um, one of the important structural features of a Dizzle Swamp Maroon building in the swamp they found around this post hole broken pieces of Native American pottery. And 
you could interpret that as, well, they found this pottery in the swamp and they used it to put it in the post hole to kind of stabilize it, to shore it up in this really unstable ground. And that's possible. Except that inorganic material of any sort was highly valuable. You could make that pottery shard into a knife or into an arrowhead or into something, some other tool that would help you to survive. But the fact that it was put into a post hole, not discarded, but utilized in that way, it suggests that there was this the sense of connectivity that the African-American Maroons had with the indigenous people who had been in the swamp before and utilizing their materials to shore up these you know, more recent buildings and structures that were building in the swamp. It was sort of a, a shared sense of, you know, the, the enemy of my enemy is therefore my friend. In a lot of ways, it was sort of a, an acknowledgement of, and in some ways, the, the ancestors of the swamp. And it was a uh, kind of a, a homage in some way as well to the swamp itself, that this has been a refuge of people for hundreds of years, potentially for thousands of years. It has provided everything we need and it continues to provide because it keeps us free. And that valuing of the landscape is something that you don't come across in a lot of other cases. You definitely don't see it outside of the swamp as much because as the dismal swamp continues to be kind of off limits to development, off limits to the, the reaches of capitalism, as much as hard as they might try, the juggernaut of capitalism is just running roughshod over the rest of the, the country in the 19th century. And the Dismal Swamp stands out sort of as this refuge from, from all the things that we can now look back on as, as being the worst parts of the 19th century. They didn't happen in the Dismal Swamp. So, you know, that, that historical story is important, but I think the Dismal Swamp can teach us a lot too about, you know, about, about the environment and about conservation and about ways of not necessarily discarding something or denigrating its importance because it is it doesn't fit into our picture, our, our ideas of what it should be. That was what the Dismal Swamp was. George Washington wanted to turn the Dismal Swamp into a plantation, into a field. Never was able to happen. But it provided freedom to thousands of people. So that ability to to utilize areas that that may not fit into other people's idea of success, or in this case, freedom. It, it suggests to, to people today that, you know, freedom is possible in ways that, that are unique, or ways that, that the vast majority of the population might not interpret it as free. Freedom can be found in places where you would never be, be able to expect it. So there's, there's a lot of lessons to pull out of the Dismal Swamp story, I think. And freedom is also available when you live in alignment with the natural environment. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. Truly, thank you so much. I don't know if you can fully understand how how valuable this conversation was for me. I really appreciate you taking your time to, to chat and for participating in the second season of Tilling the Soil. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for the invitation. It's been a blast. Thank you for tuning in to Tilling the Soil. For more information on the podcast or Whitney Plantation, go to WhitneyPlantation.org. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. All the handles can be found in the description. Thanks for listening.